0: A ron, a Kahirlig ala, iscushan ordom, Fragra horth, o course littri We had fed the heart on fantasies, the hearts grown brutal from the fair, more substance in our enmities than in our love. O honeybees, come build in the empty house of the stair. These famous lines by W. B. Yeats come from the Stair's nest by the window, section six of his long poem. Meditations in Time of Civil War. They were composed in Tua Lee Galway in July 1922, during the first weeks of the Civil War, a time when, to quote Yeats, there were no newspapers, no reliable news, we did not know who had won or who had lost, and even after newspapers came, one never knew what was happening on the other side of the hill or of the line of trees. Ford cars passed the house from time to time, with coffins standing upon end between the seats, and sometimes at night we heard an explosion, and once by day saw the smoke made by the burning of a great neighbouring house. Men must have lived so through many tumultuous centuries. One felt an overmastering desire not to grow unhappy or embittered, nor to lose all sense of the beauty of nature. A stair, our West of Ireland name for starling, had built in a hole beside my window, and I made these verses out of the feeling of the moment. On the 15th of July, a Free State soldier was shot at Gort Railway Bridge. A boy from Connemara, according to Yeats. His death and other contemporary events shadow the following lines. We are closed in, and the key is turned in our uncertainty. Somewhere a man is killed or a house burned, yet no clear fact to be discerned. Come build in the empty house of the stair. A barricade of stone or of wood, some 14 days of civil war. Last night they trundled down the road, that dead young soldier in his blood. Come build in the empty house of the stair. In 1995, as part of his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, Seamus Heaney directly invoked this poem. Yeats's Meditations, Heaney emphasised, is a poem which spoke not only to the civil strife of 1920s Ireland, but also to much more recent schisms. I have heard this poem repeated often in whole and in part by people in Ireland over the past 25 years and no wonder. It knows that the massacre will happen again on the roadside, that the workers in the minibus are going to be lined up and shot down just after quitting time. But it also credits as a reality the squeeze of the hand, the actuality of sympathy and protectiveness between living creatures. For Heaney, Yeats's poem achieves a precious doubleness of being tender-minded and tough-minded telling hard truths but also enabling empathy with another to quote again from Heaney it satisfies the contradictory needs which consciousness experiences at times of extreme crisis the need on the one hand for a truth telling that will be hard and retributive and on the other hand the need not to harden the mind to a point where it denies its own yearnings for sweetness and trust. Other creative writings composed during the early 1920s are now much less well-known. In the early years of the Free State, Waterford-born Rosmond Jacob composed her second novel, A House Divided, later entitled The Troubled House. Jacob, born into a Quaker family, was a suffragist, republican, socialist and pacifist. In 1917 she was chosen as a delegate representing Waterford at the Sinn Féin Convention where she won a commitment to women's suffrage. From 1920 to 1927 she was Secretary of the Irish Women's International League, founded in 1916 as the Irish branch of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. In 1921, she was delegate to a Peace Congress in Vienna and to another in Prague in 1929. Her diaries of the period are housed in the National Library of Ireland, and thanks to the valuable work of scholars Leanne Lane, Gerardine Meany, and Maria Luddy and also the digital research by Maria Mulvaney and Derek Green, the significance of her creative works have come to be more recognised in recent years. Jacob's novel, The Troubled House, explores the schisms within a family. The father is a Dublin Castle official, one son is a Republican, one son is a pacifist. All told from the point of view of Maggie Cullen, their mother and wife. What could seem an abstract conflict between ideological and political affiliation is given concrete life through the relationships of two generations of one family. And in turn, the force and impact of political events can be more fully understood. For example, one scene in the novel vividly describes the impact of the Bloody Sunday murders of November 1920, Events, as historian Anne Dolan has shown, with an especially traumatic and brutalising legacy. The last scenes of the novel are set just after the July 1921 truce and record an optimism that we now know to be momentary, but still worth recalling. In spite of the novel's power and quality, Jacob was unable to secure a publisher for many years. Over a decade later, in May 1936, as Georgie Meany's research has uncovered, an editor at Duffy's Publisher dismissed the original title of A House Divided as Too Sad and said that he might consider publishing the novel later when he could, quote, risk more, unquote. When the novel was finally published by Brown and Nolan in 1938, It carried a defensive epigraph emphasising that, quote, all the characters in this novel are figments of the author's mind. They represent no actual persons, unquote. By now, 1938, another aspect of the novel's optimistic ending, that post-war independence would bring new freedoms and roles for women as artists and as mothers, had a deeply ironic tinge, given the gender discrimination against women enacted by legislative and economic measures in the first decades of the new state. Those measures and the theological doctrines which they forced into social practice carried repercussions that were starkly visible in the deeply divisive social schisms of the 1980s. A period well described by novelist Anne Enright as a moral civil war that was fought out in people's homes with unfathomable bitterness. I referred to Jacob in this detail because important work is continuing by researchers and students to reclaim and revalue quieter literary and cultural writings. Artistic work that can offer us richer and more complex views of the historical and the contemporary. It's notable that the works thus returning to view can help us to expand the register of emotions which we employ in speaking of or thinking of or feeling about our historical past. Professor Verter ended his paper by invoking the depth of conviction as well as the cruel compromise of idealism. And in his recent book, he also valuably underscores the importance of giving sufficient weight to what he calls the emotional charge of 1922 to 1923." How we can best do justice to past events involves also doing emotion justice. And here, the literary and creative imagination plays a key role. Writing of the importance of fiction in our understanding of history, French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, who's been quoted earlier in this series, has observed, Individuation by means of the horrible would be blind feeling without the quasi-intuitiveness of fiction. Fiction gives eyes to the horrified narrator, eyes to see and to weep. The poetic voice in Irish literature, be it in English or in Irish, or in those languages that newly enrich our national river run, is the means whereby some of what we might term the more awkward emotions are made visible and audible, uncomfortably so. An fooa, published in 1967 by poet Mora Vacanty, begins, Séadé de, an fad olling agus Faderina Séadé léan an fua, nav athna agus dilla na faina. In the translation by Peter Sir, hatred demands patience and deadened senses. Hatred waits for its chance. In mourning her recent passing, we're reminded not only of the links between generations to which the life of Maura McEntee testifies, the same age as the state, but also her fearless poetic interrogation of both links and fissures. In her words, inheritors of the event who never knew the smell of gunpowder or of terror, who never fired a shot in anger, Worse yet, never stood up to one. These lines, as translated by Louis Dupuer, come from Food an Imrish, our Troubled Spot, set in the General Post Office in 1986. I re er octra nor ahan bulla on Fudher, no na nor kah riev fariga, slu na son. Ahias. Yes. The implicit question here is made much more explicit in her early poem, Com Religa, a poem which continued to trouble her own writing life. Far lore on Thusa, Connusahigg's son, Ibru on Urta, Evrohara nanimaluk. In the translation by Louis de Poire, titled Birth Defect, How can the moderate man, in his comfortable bed, understand how the cold afflicts his brothers on the edge? The literary representation of violence is never without challenge. It is perilously situated on the edge of that paradox so eloquently identified by Theodore Adorno, the paradox of art's wrongness and rightness, impossibility, and necessity. The intricacies of Adorno's insights deserve detailing. In his words, the so-called artistic rendering of the naked physical pain of those who were beaten down with rifle butts contains, however distantly, the possibility that pleasure can be squeezed from it. The morality that forbids art to forget this for a second slides off into the abyss of its opposite. The aesthetic stylistic principle makes the unthinkable appear to have had some meaning. It becomes transfigured, something of its horror removed. By this alone, an injustice is done the victims, yet no art that avoided the victims could stand up to the demands of justice. Here is Heaney's formulation on what he terms the thing which always is and always will be to poetry's credit from the closing lines of his Nobel lecture, Crediting Poetry. The power to persuade that vulnerable part of our consciousness, of its rightness, in spite of the evidence of wrongness all around it. The power to remind us that we are hunters and gatherers of values. And my gathering finishes with two last quotations. The closing poem in a Van Bolen sequence, Writing in a Time of Violence, published in 1994, is entitled Beautiful Speech. And finishes with a powerful invocation of what may still await. The distances we are stepping into where we never imagine words such as hate and territory and the like, unbanished still as they always would be, wait and are waiting under beautiful speech to strike. And finally quietly refusing the limits of commemorations and memorably reshaping our practice from poet When we've licked the wounds of history, wounds of war, we'll salute the stretcher-bearer, the nurse in white, the ones who pick up the pieces, who endure, who live at the edge and die there and are known. By this archival footnote, Read by fading light, fragile as a breath mark on the windowpane, or the gesture of commemorating heroes in bronze and stone. Guru